Matthew 5, verses 43 through 45. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good for those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Good morning. We're very thankful for your presence here this morning. We are always thrilled to be together, to be in God's presence, and to encourage each other. I add my welcome to our visitors. We're just thankful to have you this morning. Our topic this morning is how should the righteous behave in a world of sin? We start there in Matthew chapter 5 because our Lord expresses God's desire for his children. And his desire is that his children will be like him. In fact, that's how the chapter ends. Verse 48 says that you may be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If you go back earlier in the chapter just a little bit, start there at verse 38 and listen to some of the things the Lord said prior to that. In verse 38, he says, You have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you in the, in the courts or in the law, he says, let him, um, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and you shall uh, and, and not borrow uh, from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So that's kind of what leads into those words of our Lord. He is talking about behaving like him, behaving like God. When the righteous are surrounded by sin, uh, it's troubling. And it's troubling many of God's people today. And, and that's what we want to talk about. What do we do? Let me begin by saying there are some things we need to avoid doing. We must avoid hating people. We, we can't do that. Uh, we must also avoid conforming to the world. We must avoid unfaithfulness. This is no time to leave the Lord. We must also avoid isolation. Sometimes that happens. The world gives itself to such wickedness that Christians want nothing to do with it. And sometimes we're tempted to rush into our buildings and make sure we stay faithful with the faithful. Uh, we have to avoid that too. We have to avoid fearfulness wondering what will happen to the state of the world if she continues to, to go the way it's going. We need to remember, people are not our enemies, and the world is not our enemy. In fact, I would urge, let's stop focusing on the world so much. Let's stop complaining about how bad the world is. Let's get our focus back to God. In fact, we need to see ourselves as working with God to help sinners come to Jesus. Our lesson needs to come from the faithful of all the ages who have been surrounded by wickedness. When you open your Bible and you leave the garden, there likely won't be a time when there's not wickedness in the world. And faithful people have always been surrounded by wickedness. It's one of the reasons we have the Old Testament According to Romans 15 and verse number 4, Paul says, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, 
that we through patience and comforts of the Scripture, note the last phrase, might have hope. The righteous have always been surrounded by sin, and Christians must never wake up without hope. What should we do? The world gives itself to wickedness, and it seems like it goes further and further every day. Three things we'll notice this morning about what we shall do. Lord's will, in a couple of weeks, we'll return and note three more. This morning, let's begin with this one. Number one, we should intercede to God like Abraham. That's what he did. Surrounded by wickedness, he interceded to God on their behalf. If you have your Bibles, look back at Genesis chapter 18, and notice verse number 17 beginning. Now, this is not actually Abraham talking. In fact, Genesis 18 and verse 17 is God talking. But God is talking about Abraham, and this is what he says. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I'm about to do? What is the thing that God is about to do? He's about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, in chapters 18 and chapter 19, that's what you'll read. God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he asked the question, should I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? And then he continued by saying, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, for I have chosen him. The King James says, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after me to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. God says, I know something about Abraham, and Abraham is going to be righteous. Abraham is going to command his children and his household, and coincidentally, Abraham's household consisted of at least 318 people. And Abraham had that many of people who could go to war. That doesn't include or wouldn't include their wives and children. His household is expansive. When God says he will command his household, he's not talking about a few children. He's talking about all of these people. They will follow after Abraham because of his faithfulness, and they did. God says, I'll tell it to Abraham. Now, I submit to you that the reason God tells it to Abraham, at least in my thinking, hopefully consistent with Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 30, where God says in the midst of Judah's evil and wickedness, he says, so I sought for a man who would stand in the gap and make up the hedge for the people. God wanted an individual to plead to him on behalf of, of the people. And as soon as he tells Abraham what he's going to do, that's exactly what Abraham does. In chapter 18 and verse number 22, the Bible says the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Abraham now knows what God is going to do, and he stands before the Lord, and Abraham drew near and said, will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure, there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous? I don't know what you think about Sodom and Gomorrah. The names have become synonymous with sinfulness and wickedness, and, and, and we just almost use it as a moniker. Oh, yeah, that's as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. I do want you to know this. God wants to save it. 
God wants to save Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells Abraham what he's going to do so Abraham can intercede, and he does. And what does God do? He immediately begins to move. What if there's 50 righteous people down there? Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Nope. If you find 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy it. What if there's 40? If you find 40 wicked people, righteous people down there, I won't destroy it. What if there's 30? If you find 30 righteous people down there in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy it. Now, I don't know what you think about God, but this is the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is interested in saving people. Well, Eric, they're wicked. Absolutely. Who doesn't know that better than God? And what's he doing? Should I hide it from Abraham? I won't hide it. I'll tell him. So he can do what? Plead to me. And what will I do? I will move. If there's not 50, if there's not 40, if there's not 30, I, what if there's 20? If there's 20? Have you given this much thought that 20 righteous people could have saved Sodom and Gomorrah? The next time you're tempted to wake up and lament the state of the world, just know this. There are far more than 20 righteous Christians in America. 20 righteous people would have saved Sodom and Gomorrah. What's Abraham doing? Interceding. What's God doing? Moving. Because this is exactly what God's want. What should we do? Intercede. Why? What if there's 10? If there's 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy it. You should know this about Abraham and God. They're not the same. You see, Abraham was concerned about destroying the righteous with the wicked. He wasn't concerned about the wicked. Let's point that out, number one. God is trying to save the wicked. God is interested in the wicked. He wants them saved. But Abraham says to God, aren't you going to do right? That's verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's what begins the conversation. And then they get down to 10, and you should know this. God didn't stop. Abraham did. And honestly, I don't know why. Maybe he thought he had moved God far enough. Maybe he thought from 50 all the way down to 10, I dare not ask for five. But he stopped. God didn't stop him. It's also noteworthy that at 10, Abraham is okay with the righteous now being destroyed. You see, that was the question. You're not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. What if there is 50 righteous? Won't destroy it. We get down to 10 righteous and Abraham stops. I guess that means go ahead and destroy the righteous with the wicked. You should know this about God. Not one righteous person was ever going to be destroyed. God had already made provisions. You see, we opened this by saying the men that were with him left. Abraham stayed those individuals, angels, went down to Sodom to get the righteous out. They were never going to be destroyed. God wants people saved. What do we want? He wants us to be like him. And so he seeks for a man to make intercession on behalf of the city, on behalf of the wicked. And when intercession is made, God does all he can to save the wicked if they will repent. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look at Isaiah 59. 
Isaiah 59 records that passage of Scripture that's known so well, and again, I would urge probably a misunderstanding of the God of heaven because we read verse 1 and verse 2, and the Lord, his hand is not shortened that it cannot save, his ears, ears not so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face in you, and he will not hear. And so, consistent with our position in Genesis 3, you sin and you're out. We come to Isaiah 59, and you sin and you're out. God doesn't hear you. God is away from you. They're separated from God. What we miss, well, it's a lot of things, but one of the things we miss is Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1. This book doesn't open talking about faithful people who sin once. That's not what this book's about. This book describes people who are worse off than, than, than donkeys. The ox knows his, his, his master, the ass is master crib. My people does not know. My people does not consider. In fact, they are described as a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. The whole head is sick, the whole heart faint. From the top of the head to the soles of the feet, there's wounds and putrefying sores. In fact, God says, don't even bring your offerings anymore. That's the audience that gets Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. It's not a child of God walking in the light with an occasional stumble. That's not it. Nevertheless, in that very chapter, notice what God says later, beginning in verse number 12. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our, our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. There is no truth. Truth has stumbled in the street uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking, and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. That's the state of the nation. <laughs> Sounds like you could read that in the morning paper. That's the state of the world. It seems to always be the state of the world. But you know who saw it? God did. In fact, that's the next phrase. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice, and he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. What did he do? The verse says, then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal and a mantle. What did he do? He came to earth himself. The Word, the divine nature was made flesh. And what did he do? God interceded to God. He did it himself. What does he want from us? to be like him. What's the state of the world? It's wicked. Well, who doesn't know that? In fact, it could be a Geico commercial. Everybody knows that. Yes, it's wicked. Everybody knows that. There's never a day when it's not. Can you remember a time when the world wasn't wicked? Once you leave the garden, it doesn't get good after that. No, it's always been wickedness, and God has always had righteous people. What God's righteous people can't afford to do is forget God's actions toward the wicked. What has he always done? He's tried to save them. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1 and verse number 2. The wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. What's the solution to that, God? Go to Nineveh and preach against it, that preaching that I bid thee. Who 
refuses to go. It's not God. It's Jonah doesn't want to go. Why? In Jonah's estimation, they're too wicked to save. And so Jonah flees and goes to Tarshish. What happens, chapter 2? You know who needs God? Jonah. You know what God does save his rebellious child? In chapter 3, Jonah now reaches Nineveh, a day's journey. He's moving. He gets there. And what does he do? For yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. He preaches what God said. And what was the result? They repented. And what did God do? He relented. God spared Nineveh. You and I, as God's children, are being told to be like him. Is the world wicked? Yes, absolutely. What do we do about it? Let's intercede for them. Let's go to God on their behalf. That's what he would do. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Peter 3 and verse number 9, he is not willing that any should perish. God wants people saved. How do they get there? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Who will go for us? Here am I. Send me. Next time you wake up, you see the world doing what the world does and what it's always done. Solomon was never wrong. There is no new thing under the sun. And so the world is wicked, absolutely. But what do we do? Let's intercede like Abraham. That's what God would do. Number two, let's be holy to God like Joseph. We're going to talk about Joseph today and this week. We're looking forward to the study. Hope you can be here for our VBS. We're excited about it. So thankful to all of those who worked so hard to, to bring it to pass. Hope you can be a part of it. Genesis 37, Joseph remained faithful to God. He remained holy. Verse number 7 of Genesis 37 says, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife, Cast her eyes upon Joseph. She said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knows not what was with me in this house. He hath committed all that he had to my hand. There's none greater in the house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. And as great as all of that sounds, and it is, it's the, it's, it's the motivation of that. It's, it's the basis for saying those things that make it so laudable. And that's at the end of the verse. He asked her, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The world keeps asking us to change our minds. They know, too, we're convicted about what God says. We want to live for the Lord. And they keep saying, stop it. Join us. Come be a part of this. Live the way we live. Think the way we think. Talk the way we talk. Come be one of us. And you can hear Paul saying, brethren, please don't do that. In fact, he's begging us through inspiration in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 1. I beseech you, brethren, I beg you, by the mercies of God, that ye present yourselves, your bodies, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. You do appreciate that that's written over 2,000 years ago. 
You do appreciate that the world was wicked enough for inspiration to write to God's children, then do not join them. Do not become a part of them. What has happened now? Nothing new under the sun. The world is now asking us, come, join us, be a part of us, give in to us. The hope of the world is that the light of Christians don't go out. They don't even understand what they're asking. And despite their pleas, despite their insistence for us to conform, they don't understand. That would be the worst thing in the world for the world. If Christians turn off their lights and become like the world, how does anybody get to God? The world already lies in darkness. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill can't be hid. But what happens if you turn the light off? Well, in the sea of darkness already, if you turn off the only light that remains, now we're all in darkness. You know what Jesus would say? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. How do they get back to Jesus? Light. Who's going to shine it? You are. What happens if you give in? They'll have no way back to God. Neither will you. Sometimes people say, well, y'all don't understand. You should try to understand people. You should try to understand their lifestyle. You don't understand. They say things like, well, you don't know what people go through. You don't know their experiences. You don't need to judge people. You're just mean-spirited and evil, that's what they say. Over time, this wears on Christians. Over time, Christians began to wonder if they do understand. Christians began to sometimes wonder if they are missing something. Maybe there's something here. Let me urge this. First of all, it's not true. Asserting something doesn't make it true. Saying a person doesn't understand doesn't mean they don't understand. Saying that somebody is mean-spirited doesn't make them mean-spirited. Secondly, you should know you don't mean it. You don't simply mean you want me to understand. Because we do understand that people have difficult childhoods. We do understand that people come from abusive homes and terrible environments. We do understand that you're not always accepted. How do we understand it? Because it happened to many of us. Where did you think Christians came from? Where did you think Christians were before they became Christians? You mean to tell me that Christians lived lives of sin? That many of them came from abusive homes? That many of them were running to Jesus from that very abuse? That many of them are still struggling today dealing with the abuse? And you suddenly think, we don't understand when it happened to many of us too? But the real problem is not a matter of understanding. I just hope that at some point Christians can really begin to listen and appreciate what's really being said. It's not understanding. In order to understand to that satisfaction, to that individual satisfaction, here's what it means. 
It means by the time you begin to finally understand, and when you say, oh, I've reached the moment of enlightenment, I get it now, what that will mean is you will no longer call it sinful. That's understanding to the world. When you understand, you'll change your position. If you don't change your position, you don't understand. But if you finally understand, then you will change your position. And I'm going to beg you, brothers and sisters, no matter what you do or do not understand, don't do that. You must never forsake God's character. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse number 20, if you have your Bibles, it's a worthy read. Here's what God says. Isaiah chapter 5, and there are many woes in this section. But verse 20 in particular, we, we might notice verse 18 that says, Woe to those who drag iniquity the cause of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes, who say, Let him take speed and hasten his work that we may see it. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. Woe to them. Here is the problem. Who call evil good and good evil. Who put light for darkness and darkness for light, who put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. What's the real problem? That's it right there. You won't change your position. There is something that's evil, and you won't call it good. There is something that's dark, and you won't say it's light. Now, this is precisely what the world has done. Christians, you and I have to remain holy. Sin will always be sinful. Sin will always be a choice. And sin will always be identifiable because it's contrary to the character of God. And there are in our Bible lists of things that God calls sins. John says sin is the transgression of the law or its lawlessness. It is a refusal to submit to God and his word and his character and follow after him. That's sinful. It misses the mark. It transgresses. It goes beyond. And then God lists some. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, lists some. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, lists some. And Paul, through inspiration, says that these who do this won't inherit eternal life. Then there's Revelation 21, 8. There's Galatians 5, 19 to 21. What is God saying? This is evil and this is good. Anyone can distinguish the works of the flesh from the fruit of the Spirit. And what are we being asked to do? We're being asked to call the works of the flesh, and now they are the fruit of the Spirit. No, sir, and no, ma'am. We simply cannot do that. We must not do that. God created two genders. That's what God did. Genesis 2, 18 to 25, Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Jesus even asked, have you not read? He which made them at the beginning made them male and female. That's what God did. Now you want someone convicted of that truth to change their position and now say, no, there are 10, 15, 20 genders. That's not a matter of understanding. That's a matter of conforming. Paul says, I'm begging you, brethren, don't conform. 
Lying is wrong. We can't say otherwise. Fornication, adultery are sinful. We can't say otherwise. Lust, stealing, murder, sinful. We cannot say otherwise. It's also noteworthy that sin can always be forgiven. If we will admit that it's sin and turn away from them. What does God say? Well, you be holy. Joseph did. Joseph remained holy in Egypt, faced with wickedness. He remained holy to God. What should we do? We should remain holy. Be ye holy, God says, for I am holy. Thirdly, we should trust God like Job did. In Job chapter 23, I think I used the word frustrated this morning. I think that's, that's being real kind to Job. He's angry. Uh, Job is angry at the things that are going on in his life, and part of that anger is due to his ignorance of why they're going on and what ultimately caused it. Job was a faithful servant of God. In fact, in chapter 1, in the first five verses, he is described as upright and the greatest man in the East, and he is righteous in every way. Job is faithful. And suddenly, Job finds himself suffering, suffering physically, suffering loss, suffering the pain of, of, of rejection at home as well as abroad, and his friends are there. He says they are miserable comforters. And then Job turns his attention to God. And beginning in verse number 7, Job says, There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. He said, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I can't perceive him. On the left hand, where doth he work? I cannot behold him. He hided himself on the right hand. I can't see him. But... He knows the way that I take. When he had tried me, I shall come forth as gold. What led into that discussion? Go back to verse number one and listen to what Job says at the beginning of the chapter. Then Job replied, even today my complaint is rebellion. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No, surely. He would pay attention to me. Can you see it? I don't know that he's shaking his fist, but he's close. Job is bothered and agitated. Where is God and what is God doing? I imagine that there have been one or two Christians, the way the world has changed its course and behaved itself, that hasn't woke up wondering, where is God? What is he doing? And why does he allow all of this stuff to go on and on? And please, don't let something happen to their life in the midst of this wickedness. Because the wicked will seem to prosper and the righteous will suffer and they will again turn to God and say, where is he and what's he doing? That's exactly Job's position. But here's where Job differs from other people. Well, Job didn't know what God was doing. He didn't know why God was doing it. But Job didn't allow his ignorance of God's actions to stop him from trusting God. 
He knew enough despite his ignorance to say, he knows the way that I take. And when I am tried, I will come forth as gold. Job knew enough to say, I'm going to stay with him even though I don't understand. Oh, that every Christian would. Job had far more le less revelation than we had. But let me ask you this. Don't you know enough to trust God by now? Don't you enough to believe that God is good by now? Or are you one of those people who look out at the world, put the finger in the air and ask, is God good today? Let me check the circumstances of my life and let me see. Let me check the temperature of my marriage. Let me see where my children are. Let me check who likes me at work. Let me see how many I got on Facebook and Instagram. And then I'll decide whether or not God is good. No, that's not how this works at all, friends. Your ignorance and my ignorance of God's activities shouldn't stop us from trusting God. Job was right in that he didn't know. He didn't know because God didn't tell him. And God didn't tell him, well, quite frankly, because he didn't have to. God and Satan had a discussion in Job chapter 1, unknown to Job. And God has so much confidence in Job, unknown to Job, that God took up the challenge. Have you considered my servant Job? Yeah, I would get him, but you would put a hedge around him and can't nobody get to him. But I tell you this, if you touch his stuff, he curse you to your face. Okay, touch his stuff, but don't touch him. Naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gives, the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's how chapter 1 ends. Job didn't turn against God. God has great confidence in Job. And the fact that Job didn't know it, Job still said, but I will come forth as gold. When you don't know God's specific actions in the world, trust what you do know. And what you know is this. God is on his temple. God is on his throne. And God is in control. And there is nothing in the world that will ever change that. Eric, you haven't seen the state of the world. I know God is in heaven. I know God saw it. You just don't understand, man. It's crazy out there. I know the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. I know the eyes of the Lord are open over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. I know God is long-suffering and patience, and we should account that the long-suffering of God is salvation, for every day he spares and delays his coming is one more day somebody gets to be saved somewhere. I know there's nobody who can do a thing about the God of heaven holding us firmly and safely in his hand. It used to be a song sung when we were children. When did it change? Does he still have the whole world in his hand? Or is there somebody prying open the fingers? <laughs> Romans chapter 8 would say, no, there is nothing created that can separate us from the love of God. In fact, if God is for us, what does it matter if the world sets itself on fire? God is in control of all things, and it will be as he said it will be. No faithful person ever regretted trusting God, and you shouldn't either. God will do what he promised, and God can do what he promised. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, and shall it not come to pass? 
if God has given you a promise, go on and live your life in the joy and goodness of the Lord. It'll come to pass. In fact, we read through the book of Job, and we see it over and over and over again. Joseph was vindicated. Moses vindicated. Abraham vindicated. Job vindicated. You get to chapter 42, verses 7 through 10, and it's Job praying for his friends. And it's God restoring Job in every way to those things that he had. You have not spoken to me uh, the things that is right as my servant Job has. He will pray for you. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the souls unto the altar. How long, O God, before you vindicate? Chapter 19, 1 and 2, vindicate. God will, he always has. And one day, one day, through your faithful life, whether you go to see him first or he comes to see us first, one day, the righteous will be vindicated in this age too, provided we keep trusting God. God wants us to be like him. That's where we began. Matthew chapter 5, God is talking. And he says that you might be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In contrast to what? Evil. What happens if somebody slaps you on the cheek? Evil. Turn the other one. What happens if they steal and take you? Well, give them your coat also. You've heard it said you hate those who hate you, love those who love you, but that's not God's way. No. God allows his sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He gives his rain to the just and the unjust, the evil and the good. What should you and I do? Wake up tomorrow. Do you think the world's going to be better tomorrow? You think you're going to wake up and read in the news and hear on the, the television, oh, we changed our mind? No. But what you can do is wake up tomorrow and know God is in heaven. You can wake up tomorrow and know the Bible is an inspired word. Truth is still true. And you should intercede for them like Abraham. And you should remain holy like Joseph. And you should keep trusting God like Job. And no matter what trial you come through, you will come out like gold, just like Job did. If you're not a Christian this morning, we beg you to become one. There's a lot of people who've changed their minds on God. Religious people are now saying things that once they said, no, that's wrong, now it's right. Friends, they're not helping you. They're not helping you at all. They're encouraging you to keep going away from God. We would beg you to come back. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, to change your heart and your mind, to repent, to confess Jesus' name, say the same thing, confess he is the Son of God, to be immersed in water, buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins. And friends, if you'll do that, God will forgive your sins. That's what he wants to do. If you are his child, the world will keep clamoring. But let's not hate the world. Let's not hate the people. Let's intercede for them. Let's beg God. Give them more time. Give them more space. Give us more opportunity to share this good news with them. And while we do that, let's remain holy. It's not hypocritical judging. 
It's following after Jesus. It's being holy because he's holy. Let's not conform. Let's keep trusting God. Friends, right is always going to be right. Truth is always going to be truth. And God is ultimately, God way will win out. We can help you in any way. We invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.